share with you today. I don't know why uh, this is the word that I believe um, is, is timely for, for, for people in this room. This is what the word of God says. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful. The, the NIV translation there doesn't do a good job. Uh, the actual translation that's, that's more proper, um, that word be careful, it says let us fear. Okay? Let us fear that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Verse 2. This is very significant verse. Okay, I want you to pay attention with what the Hebrew writer is saying here. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed, or a more accurate translation, because those who heard did not combine it, or the King James says, mix it up with faith. So the message that the, they heard, so we're going to discover who are, who are they, who is the author referring to they. The message was of no value because whatever message they heard, they didn't combine it or mix it with faith. Verse 3. Now we who have believed enter the rest, just as God had said. So I declare an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Quoting Psalm 95. And yet, his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere, he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested. Notice the word rested. Uh, God rested from all his works. Genesis chapter 2.2. 2. Uh, the writer quotes that. And again, in the passage above, he says, They shall never enter my rest. Therefore... Since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again has set a certain day, calling it today. This, is, this he did when a long time after he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works or their labor, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let's pray. Spirit of God, we, we pray right now that you would open up our understanding. Holy Spirit, when Jesus testified of you, 
He said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will teach you all things. Holy Spirit, you are the teacher above all teachers. I pray right now that you would teach every heart, that you would open the understanding of every mind, that we may comprehend your truth that is able to deliver us today. May we not walk out in the same way that we walked in, but may your word grasp our hearts and may we take heed to your word this afternoon. Spirit of God, empower me that I declare your word with boldness and authority as I should rightly preach it. Bless the time that we have together in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. My title today, as I said to you, is called Rest in Peace. The Hebrew writer, you have to understand when you're reading the Bible, context is everything, understanding the letter, understanding the purpose, understanding the occasion of why it was written will all enhance your ability to understand the text. So if I was, for example, writing a, a particular note to my wife uh, because her birthday was coming up, if you were to take that letter a hundred years from now and read it, it would make more sense if you understood the context into which or the occasion of why I wrote those very words. So in the same way, understanding when you're studying your Bible and you're reading it, understand who the writer is, why they're writing the letter, and what is the context of the things that they're speaking of. The Hebrew writer is writing to primarily a Jewish audience, Jewish believers who are facing increasing opposition at that particular time. These believers are in danger of abandoning their faith. Because of the persecution, because of the challenges that they're encountering, they are in danger of abandoning the Christ, the Messiah that they embraced. And the writer encourages them in this book of Hebrews to be persevering in their faith. Last week we, we read about persevering in faith and in that race that God has marked out for us. In chapter 11, he speaks all about faith. And the Hebrew writer is, is encouraging these Jewish converts to, to Christianity. They're, they're followers of the Messiah. He's encouraging them in their faith and he shows them that Jesus is the final revelation of God. The writer says Jesus is these three things in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better, he uses that word better 11 times in the book of Hebrews. He uses the word superior four times in the book of Hebrews and he uses the word greater seven times in the book of Hebrews. So the writer wants them to understand Jesus is better, Jesus is far superior, Jesus is far greater than anything and anyone in the old covenant. He tells them that he's greater than the prophets. He tells them that he's greater than the priests, that he's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses and he's greater than Joshua. He wants them to understand that if they were to abandon the final revelation of God, they are going to a lesser revelation. They are going to the, one, to the ones that were pointing to the true revelation of God. And he shows them by arguing through countless numbers of scriptures from the Old Testament that Jesus is far superior. He is far greater than anyone that has ever walked on this earth. The writer is encouraging them to not fall back to legalism. That was one of the, the fights that they had, that they are defaulting back to trying to earn their right standing before God. 
something that Jesus came to do to take our place so that we may accept the righteousness of God, not by our works, but by believing in the work of Christ. So he's encouraging them in the letter of Hebrews to not fall back to legalism, to not abandon their faith, and to not get lazy in their faith. In our text today that we just read as we started this message, the writer is addressing a very obvious point. Eleven times in the chapter that we read, which is chapter four, eleven times and two times in the previous chapter, which is chapter three, for a total of 13 times, the writer uses the word rest. Rest. So it's very obvious. When you see a word, especially in a short amount of space, con constantly repeated, the main emphasis of that text is that particular word. So the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 4, he, he's speaking of a rest. He's speaking of something that, that he wants them to understand by learning from the lessons of the old ancestors, of the uh, Israelites that walked before them. I want to ask a question to someone in this room today. Have you ever been tired or exhausted from a long day at work? <laughs> yeah, are you has? I think, is, are you the only one? Do you all work? I mean, I remember the, the, the times where I'm just so exhausted. When I went to Adelaide, for example, I was just, you know, teaching the whole day and, and, and my, my throat was hurting. And you might think, speaking, is that really hard? You're just speaking with your mouth. What are you using? I mean, it takes everything, every energy that you have. And sometimes I'm just so tired that I don't even know how I sleep, especially Sundays. You can testify because I have very little sleep during Saturday night. And when I go home, She's speaking to me. I'm drooling on the side. Like I have no idea where I am. But have you ever been tired or exhausted from a long day of labor-intensive work? You know, weariness comes often from hard labor or hard toil. But weariness doesn't just come from physical, physically. Sorry, weariness doesn't just come physically, but we can also be mentally weary from our thought life. You know, the physical weariness, everyone can identify it. The physical weariness, your body begins to shut down and give up, especially if you haven't slept, you will be driving and you, you'll, just, you'll begin to go zone in and out. So you can identify it. But a greater thing that we all go through is a weariness that is inside. It is an internal weariness, internal, uh, internal tiredness that we cannot quite put our finger to and say, this is why, why am I feeling in a particular way? But there is this weariness that the, I believe the, the writer is addressing in our text today. A lot of people live their life not ever finding rest for that type of weariness that is existing in their soul. I mean, they do take vacations and have a good time here and there and you might see their snapchat and they and they are in one in one season they're in Maldives and the other one they they're in Turkey and another season they they're just going from holiday to holiday but that that type of of vacation they can have that but it doesn't mean that they have the true rest for their soul that can only come from the place that the writer points us to today Elvis Presley, on the night of his death, when you read the history, it says that he had a heart attack when he died. But it's, very, it's much more complicated than that. Um, that. He was addicted to a lot of drugs, and some say it was an overdose. 
and there's other evidences that show that he committed suicide uh, because of one particular note and other notes that he used to write. He was very low in his time. Mind you, he was known as the king of rock and roll. roll. You know, we say the goat of this particular industry. He was the greatest at that time, the greatest rock and roll star of their time. I mean, when he went to a place, he filled an auditorium. He filled the space. He was wealthy. He had everything that you can think of. But on the night of his death, he wrote this note that was found by his manager, Joe. Scrunched up and rolled up and thrown on the side in his room. This is what the, 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 one of the parts of the note, this is what it said. Elvis Presley said this, I need a long rest. I'm sick and tired of my life. If it wasn't for my prayers, I think my life would end. My willpower is almost gone. You know, when I read that, it touched my heart. He said, I need a long rest. There's a weariness that was inside of him that he needed rest from. But no matter what kind of vacation he'll be going on, he can never find rest for the, for the weariness that is inside of him. His body is relaxed. He can get a massage anytime. He can go and, and have a relaxing holiday anywhere. But there was a weariness inside of him and he penned the words down in a note and he scrunched it up and he threw it and he said, will anyone ever deliver me of this? And, sad, and sadly, he ended up in that weariness, passing away and dying. When you read the report of how he died, he was actually in the toilet and he was taking number two and as he was pushing, he had a heart attack and he collapsed on the floor. And doctors say that it was the drugs that he was taking put a lot of strain in his heart. So when he would push, that strain affected his heart and he passed away. In a moment, he was gone. I want to speak to weary people today. The writer is dealing all about rest in this chapter. Chapter 4 begins with therefore. Therefore, connects what was said prior to what he's about to say in chapter 4. So in chapter 3, the writer is, ends with the following verse. In chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 18 to 19 says this, And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. After the writer shows Jesus being greater then the prophets, then the angels, then Moses in chapters 1 and chapters 2. In chapter 3, the writer is pointing back to the story of Moses and he's using the story of Moses and the Israelites as the backdrop of what he's about to say in chapter 4. He shows them how they, they did not enter the promised land because of their unbelief. In the Old Testament, we have to understand we have the New Testament contained and in the New Testament, we have the Old Testament explained. So in the Old Testament, it's pointing to God's new covenant and when you're reading God's new covenant, it explains God's old covenant. So you can't say, I don't need the Old Testament. No, we need both. Because to correctly understand the plan of God, the wisdom of God, the salvation that comes through Christ, we need to know His revelation in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So the writer is pointing to a very specific time in history when the people of God were promised by God that they will enter the promised land in Numbers chapters 13 and 14 and the people, the majority of the people refused to believe in the promise that God had given them. 
So if you read Numbers 13 and 14, God tells him, select one leader from every tribe. So they select 12 leaders and they go and explore the land of Canaan. You know the story. They go, they're like, yep, what God said about the land is true. He said, we're going to possess it. But 10 of them come back with an unbelieving spirit and they begin to spread the news among the people. No, we cannot enter this land. Why? Because in our own eyes, in our own understanding, they are giants. We are like grasshoppers and we cannot do it. And the Bible says that this negative report spread out fear throughout the land. But in the midst of this report, there were two young men named Joshua and Caleb. And they had, the Bible says, they had a different spirit and a different attitude. They didn't say that. They said, yep, we saw the giants. Yep, we saw the challenges. But we believe that God is able to lead us into the promised land because we've seen him evidently working before this we've seen him evidently working in our life and if God said it he's not a man to lie but he will lead us into the promised land I'm just adding other things to the faith language that they had in their heart they said no we can do this we can possess the land why because God said it we don't believe and rely and put confidence in our wisdom we put confidence in the word of God and in chapter 14 when you read the story because of the negative report and the unwillingness to believe in the promise of God, God brought a judgment. And he said, Moses, no one in that generation is going to enter into the promised land except Joshua and Caleb and everyone under the age of 20. It is the next generation that are going to possess my promised land and the others will wander around in the desert and they will die in the desert. Listen to me very carefully. I believe God is going to do something very significant in your heart and in your life today if you listen very carefully. So in verse 1, the writer of Hebrews says, the promise of entering his rest still stands. God said to Joshua, God said to Moses, you're going to enter my promised land and you will inherit the land and you will have rest from your enemies in that land. But the writer of Hebrews is saying in the new covenant, in the new, in the new context, he's saying that promise still stands. The writer is focusing on the promise of rest. Moses and his generation didn't enter Canaan, the promised land. Joshua was the one that took them in to the promised land. Quick observation at the side, as a side note here. Listen to me, church. Moses can never take the people of God into the promised land because Moses represents the law. The law of God is what Moses represents in the old covenant. He is the one that brought forth the law of God. So whenever you think of Moses, think about the law. And you know, when you read in, in, in Numbers chapter 20, when you read why God said, you cannot enter the promised land. You read the story, you're like, oh, Moses messed up. <laughs> because God says to Moses, I want you to speak to the rock. When the people were grumbling and complaining, speak to the rock and water will come out. But Moses goes, he gets angry, he grabs a stick and he hits the rock twice. And God, water still comes out. But God says to him, because you did not believe in what I had said and you relied on your own method rather than my instruction, you will not enter the promise of God. But when I was thinking about that, I believe in God's grand plan and God's grand wisdom in the New Testament now, I can look back at that and say, Moses could never take him into the promised land 
Because you see, to enter the rest of God, it's not through the law that you enter the rest of God. It's through the Yeshua. <laughs> You'd be like, what are you talking about? You? Joshua's name means Jehovah is salvation. Joshua's Hebrew name is Yeshua. The angel told Mary to name Jesus, to name the child that's about to come, to name him Yeshua, which is the same name as Joshua, because he will save his people from their sins. So Joshua is a typology of Christ. God from the beginning is giving us a picture of the work that he's about to do in a time that was forthcoming many years from there. God was saying, Moses is not going to enter you into my rest. There's a rest that the human soul needs, but it's going to be Joshua that's going to take you into this rest. But in verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 4, the writer says, if Joshua had given them rest, God wouldn't speak to David in Psalm 95 over another day that a rest will be found in. So what the writer does he shows us that Joshua led them into the promised land, into the rest that God had given them there. But that wasn't a rest from the enemies. A physical rest wasn't truly the rest that God was promising. So yes, Joshua led the believing people into the promised land, giving them rest. But one greater than Joshua gives the true rest. That's the argument of the Hebrew writer. Joshua led them into the promised land. But now there's one greater than Joshua. He is Yeshua the Messiah. And he is the one that will truly lead us into the rest that God can only give. And the writer says in verse 1, Let us fear that we have not missed it as they did. Please hear me very carefully. In the next 15 minutes, no one leave this room. And I want you to hear what this word is saying. Listen to me very carefully because time is running out. We are living in the last days. We are living in the times, I believe with all my heart, I'm convicted, we are living in the last days. You might say to me, oh, you can't say that. The Bible says that we are living in the last days since the, the ascension of Christ. We are living in the last days. But when you see the signs of what Jesus said will be just before his coming, we are literally living in those times. And my job as a pastor is to point you to the truth. My job as a pastor is not for you to come here, giggle, laugh, have a good time, and go back to your own lives. No, my job is to preach the word of God, and your job is to receive the word of God. And we need to run the race that God has given us in our generation so that when we die, like we learned last week, a eulogy will be read by God. Well done, my good and faithful servant. The writer says, let us fear that we did not miss it like they missed it. He's bringing that story back into their time. He's saying, do not, do not be complacent now. Do not be relaxed now. You see, they missed it because they refused to believe in the promises of God. And you too persist in believing and trusting God, lest you also miss it. He said, before it's too late, believe in the promise of God. Verse 2, this is my main section. In verse 2, the writer says one thing. Can you quickly go to verse 2 for me? Hebrews chapter 4 verse 2. For we have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. Now he's mashing up the story that they had with our story. So we also hear the word of God just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them. Why? Because what they heard was not combined with faith. The Hebrew writer reminds his audience that we have 
we have had the gospel or the good news proclaimed and preached to us just as they did. They were told the good news, that God is giving them a promised land. They will preach the good news, that God is delivering them from the enemies and they're going to take possession of the land. But the message that they heard was of no value to the majority because they did not combine what they heard with faith. The word combine, write this down if you're taking notes, the word combine or mix means this, to unite with by agreement. To unite with by agreement. In other words, the people did not unite with God by agreement in trusting in his word and his promise. They rather chose unbelief rather than faith. I want to ask all of us a question today. Do we combine faith with what we hear every single Sunday that we show up here? Now, there are 52 weeks in a year, correct? Is my math so far right? 52 weeks in a year. If you are a regular attendee and you come to all of those 52 weeks, that means you hear 52 messages in a year. That's without excluding conferences and connect groups and other events that you might attend. If you have been a Christian for five years, that's 260 messages excluding conferences and Bible studies and other events. If you've been a Christian for 10 years, that's 520 messages that you have heard, excluding conferences and other things that come in between. So my question is this, what do we do with all of those messages that we have heard? Do we truly believe the message and the word of God? Because if we believe in the word of God, we will act upon the word of God. The Hebrew writer said that the message that they heard was of no value to them. It didn't benefit them because they didn't combine what they heard with faith. You know, it never ceases to amaze me how two people are sitting just like you and the person next to you. I want you to just picture this illustration. Two people are sitting in the same room. They hear the same message from the same messenger. One will walk out weeping and embracing the mercy of God and the other would walk out and say what on earth was what was that preacher wearing today they're both in the same room they're both experiencing the same message one is saying God I thank you for the word that I have received today and that message is transforming their heart and their lives and their actions but the other walks out the same message they walk out what on earth was you wearing today he looks so funny to one, the word, because it was mixed with faith, benefited them. To the other one, it was of no value, of no benefit. One person walking out and making a decision to forgive the person that had hurt them, and the other person that heard the same message on forgiveness would walk, walk out saying, what on earth is he, is he trying to say? Throwing shades like that at me. They heard the same message one receives the message of the Lord and decides to forgive their brother or sister of the hurt that they have caused them because they understood the forgiveness that Christ has given them. The other one walks out taking a personal offense at that and saying, why is he talking about me on the stage? You see, one, what is the difference, my friends? One believes in the word and the other doesn't believe in the word. One leaves with the word changing their life and the other having no value to them. 
You know, some people say to me, yo, yo, well, if I see a miracle with my own eyes, I will believe. You know, yo, if I see like some like concrete evidence, like what, what this says, what this book says, if I see some real evidence, then I will believe. No, you won't. Church, the people who refuse to believe in the message that came through God, through his servant Moses, that you will enter the promised land are the very same people that saw with their naked eye the waters of the Exodus splitting in half. They saw a miraculous event that till this day the Jewish people talk about. They saw it with their own eye, the wonders of God, God destroying their enemies. They saw it with their own eye, God delivering them. And in the wilderness... God says, now take possession of your promises, of your inheritance, and they don't believe. People in Jesus' time said the same thing. Give us a sign, Jesus, and then we'll believe in you. No, you won't. Jesus said to me, I have given you many signs. You have watched miracle after miracle, the blind from birth being healed. You have watched everything. He said, you adulterous and wicked generation. I will give you one sign, the sign of Jonah. In other words, the final sign of proof and evidence to you and to me that God will give us is the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What Jesus said to them, I'm going to show you proof, concrete, that what I say is true and who I am is true. And if you don't believe that, you will not believe in any miracle that you see. The final sign that Jesus gave is the sign of his resurrection and no other sign will be sufficient. So if you're in this room, you're saying to me, yo, yo, I will believe the word if I see just a miracle. If I see a prophet call out my number, you will not believe. You'll be amazed, you'll be wowed, but you'll go back into your old ways because that doesn't transform you. What transforms you is a revelation of knowing that God is who he says he is and we can trust in every word that he speaks. If you are not convinced in the resurrection power of Jesus, no other miracle will convince you. And the writer says, the promise still stands. The writer reminds his audience that the promise of rest is still available today. Friends, the rest was not a possession of the land, but rather the possession of a person. The rest that God wanted to give his people was never a territory, was never a house, was never a job, was never a marriage, was never a child. The rest that God wanted to give people was himself. The weariness that's found in the soul can only be quenched by the rest that comes from the giver of life. And the writer is saying in Hebrews chapter 4, there is a Sabbath day rest. And he takes them back to Genesis chapter 2. He's showing them there is a God kind of rest. A rest that makes you cease from doing labor work on your own strength. And that is available still today. The God, the God kind of rest for the weary soul. When you enter God's rest, the writer says in verse 10 that we will rest from our own works. So the plea of the writer is when we hear his voice today, I don't know who you are, but you came because God wanted you to be here. When I come every single Sunday, I say, God, bring the person that you need to be here today. So you came here, you might have planned, you might have said, oh, someone invited me, I didn't really plan, but this person said, no, no, you came by the divine purpose of God. And the writer is saying this, he's playing with his audience. Today, if you hear his word, his voice, do not harden your hearts, <clears throat> but believe in the Lord and you will find rest. 
I want to speak today to weary souls because in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 to 2, this is what Isaiah the prophet says. Come, God speaking through him, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy uh, wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? and your labor on what does not satisfy. Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the riches of fear. God is speaking through Isaiah, and he's giving an invitation to the thirsty and weary soul to come to him and to eat without money and without cost. Friends, there is a rest that God alone can give, and it's free of charge. You don't have to pay hundreds of dollars to see a wizard, to see him, to see him speak a motivational speech about how you can overcome your tomorrow. No, the, the freedom that God gives is free, free of charge, no money, no cost. Come, buy and eat. It's expensive. You have to buy it, but you buy it by heaven's currency, which is faith. Come, receive what I freely can give you, and you will find rest, and you will find rest. God says, why spend money and your labor on what is not bread and what will not satisfy? God wants to free you today from your labor, from your own works. Today, I really believe that God wants to set free those who are wandering in the desert. You see, unbelief will leave you wandering in the desert as it did with the people of Moses' time murmuring and complaining about everything, going around in circles and not really getting anywhere. That's what they're doing. <laughs> they will go around and the next year they'll come, whoa, we've seen that rock before. <laughs> we, we thought we we're progressing, but we're going around and we're going around. That, that rock is there again. And they're wandering in the desert, aimlessly walking, running, but not getting anywhere. I believe today, I'm telling you that God wants to deliver people today people who are wandering in the desert of unbelief, in the land of restlessness like Elvis. Elvis said, I'm tired. I need a long rest. I wish a preacher encountered him at that time. I wish, I wish a preacher told him there is a rest that God alone can give. And Elvis sang a lot of Christian songs, so he heard the gospel, but he persisted in unbelief. God wants to deliver you if this message is combined with faith today. Whoever you are, do not persist in unbelief, in disobedience, in the hardening of your heart as the Israelites did. That's what that writer of Hebrews did. He used the example as a backdrop of the Israelites to warn us today. Paul says, Paul says the following to the Jews who are not believers. Romans chapter 11 verse 23. Look at you can come and play. Romans chapter 11, verse 23, and the band is gonna sing a song, give me faith, and we're gonna pray together. Romans eleven twenty three, the Bible says this, and if they do not persist in unbelief, talking about the Jews that do not believe in Christ, if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. What Paul is saying here, he's saying, I will, I will. God is saying, I will bring them back to my promises. I will graft them into the new covenant if they do not persist in unbelief. I don't know why there's an urgency with this message in my heart today. 
whether you're in this room, whether you're watching the message following this service. God wants you to know you don't have to wander in the desert of unbelief, trapped and ensnared by all sorts of things. God wants to deliver you today. In Mark chapter 9, in other words, what Paul is saying, it's not too late for God to change you if you surrender your unbelief. You know, some people say, oh, yeah, yeah, there's no hope for me. I've had many people sit across my table and say to me, Yo-Yo, I've been bound up in this sin for so long, I can never come out of it. I can never break free from this. I say, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Because my Bible tells me there's nothing too hard for the Lord. My Bible tells me that God is able to do above and beyond what we can even imagine and think of. My Bible tells me that God delivers me from my sin. So I tell people often, stop listening to the lies and start listening to the truth. Because when you know the truth, you know your identity. When you know your identity, you know who you are. When you know who you are, you stop living in a lie. In Mark chapter 9, verse 24, Jesus says this to the unbelieving father. I love this man. One of the people that I want to meet when I go to heaven is this man. He's genuine. He's real. It's not fake about him. He, he has this son that's, that's demon-possessed. And he struggled and he's suffered in his life many, many ways. And, he's, and he goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you can, can you please save my boy? And Jesus says, if you can, do you know who I am? And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Saying, Jesus, I came to you because there is a faith in me, but I also have unbelief, but help me to overcome it. See, God loves a prayer that's honest like that. The last point that I want to say is what the Hebrews writer ends with in verses 13 to 14. After he speaks, he begins in verse 1 with the history of the Israelites and the message they heard, the word of God that they heard. He said, those that did not believe died off in the desert But those who believed are the ones that entered into the promise of God, the rest of God. And then he says, the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. You know that scripture we always quote? This is the context it's found in. The writer returns back to the power of the word of God in verses 12 to 13. That God's word is able to help us in all areas of our life. Let me give you this quick illustration that, that God put in my heart. Imagine if we came to the word of God as we do when we go to a doctor. You know, we go to the doctor, doctor, I don't know what it is, but I have this pain inside of my tummy and it's just irritating me and it will never leave me. So the doctor examines you and he says, I have examined you and what you have is a condition called such and such. So what you will need to do is you need to take three tablets three times a day and you need to stop eating such and such and you'll be on the road to recovery from your sickness. When you are hearing that from the doctor, you're not going to walk out depressed. (laughs) You're going to walk out rejoicing. Finally, I have a name for my condition. Finally, I have the steps to the solution that can set me free from this pain. Imagine if we go to the Word of God in such way that we believe in what this word says. 
Imagine if we went to the word of God in faith like that. Because what the Hebrew writer is showing us is that God's word is able to diagnose. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It can penetrate to the depth of the soul that no other man can, no other counseling can, no other counseling session with your your can. There is the word of God that can get inside of your life and it can begin to diagnose things in your heart. The word of God can diagnose the unforgiveness that resides in your heart that's leading you to living a life in the wilderness. The word of God can diagnose the hatred that's inside of your heart that's leading you to live a life in the wilderness. And God grieves because he sees you and he's saying the solution is here, but you will not come, you will not believe. God's word wants to diagnose the selfishness in our hearts, the lust that is filled in our hearts, the fears, the fears that help us, that, sorry, in a, stop us from entering into his promises. The word of God wants to deliver us. If we have faith in what he says, it will set us free when we take heed to the advice of God's word. Just like you go to your doctor and when he says something, you believe what the doctor says and you buy that medication in the pharmacy next door and you swallow that thing, even though you never read in the back of the label what that thing is filled with, you trust what the doctor has said. Imagine if we approached this book like that. God wants to deliver our weary soul from wandering in the desert of unforgiveness, hatred, and so on. They're deserts. They will leave you wandering. But God has given us His promises, His word. We've got to come to the word of God boldly with faith. Let's all stand. In chapters 14, sorry, in chapter 4, in verses 14 and 16, after He says the power of the word of God, He goes on, He continues. And he says this, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, so you know the rest that can only come from God. You know that is, the rest is found in believing in the promise of God. And then he says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to that of faith, the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Verse 16, listen up carefully. Let us then approach the throne, God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Church, I want to tell you that you can come to him. That Jesus understands your pain. He understands your struggles. He understands your weakness. He understands your desert. And nothing is hidden before his sight. And he wants you to come to him. Because in Matthew chapter 11 verse 28 to 29, Jesus said these very words. Come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are tired and burdened. And I will give you rest. You see, the rest is found in Christ. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your soul. My message today is that the rest that we are all seeking is found in, not in us dying. Resting in peace is not found in us dying, but in Jesus dying for you. Jesus died so that we can live. 
And we know upon the grave, all of us, we know that people write, rest in peace. May his soul rest in peace. You don't rest in peace under the ground. You rest in, pre- in peace in Christ. And today, this rest is available for you and for I. The invitation, the promise still stands today. My prayer is that you do not harden your heart. That you do not, that you do not walk out of here hearing the message, but it has no value in your life. It's useless. It's meaningless because you did not mix it or combine it with faith. But my prayer is that this day is the day that you surrender to the promise of God, to the word of God. May you make a decision that you will not wander any longer in the wilderness, but like Joshua, you will trust in God's word. Let's pray. We're going to sing a song in a minute. We're going to say, God, give me faith. God, I don't want to wander in the desert. I don't know about.